The philosophy is that the closer in time you come to your race, the more like the race your training should become. That Triathlon Show, Episode 1. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome to Episode 1 of That Triathlon Show. Before we get started with today's episode, where I interview Joe Friel, I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, to go back and listen to episode zero, the pilot episode of That Triathlon Show. In that episode, you'll learn all about this podcast, what we've got coming up over the next few weeks, what the podcast is about, who is it for, what differentiates it from other podcasts, and so on. So it will be very helpful for you, I think, to go and listen to that episode to learn more about That Triathlon Show. But with that said, let's dive right into today's episode. So as I said, my guest today is none other than Joe Friel, who is one of the most famous persons in the triathlon industry. If you don't know him, Joe Friel is one of the most accomplished coaches in the sport of triathlon, and he's by far the most successful author, with the Triathlete's Training Bible being just one of over 10 excellent endurance sports books that he has to his name, and we covered the Triathlete's Training Bible in today's interview. Joe has been around the sport since 1980, and he started coaching in 1983 to 1984, opened the first triathlon store in the world in 1984, and he's well known as the co-founder of Training Peaks, which is probably many of you listeners use in your day-to-day triathlon training. It's the largest software company in triathlon or endurance sports in general for planning, logging, and analyzing your training. So in today's interview, we'll talk about changes to the new edition of the Triathlete's Training Bible and why it's been completely rewritten. Joe threw everything but the table of contents away, basically, and started completely from scratch with the fourth edition. So it's interesting to learn why that is and what has changed. We also talked about periodization and how to plan your entire year or season in triathlon. And on a more micro level, how to structure your training week optimally. One thing that many listeners will find useful is how to train for master's athletes and stay fast once that age-related decline inevitably starts to happen. You can counteract that, and we go into that in the interview. And finally, we talk about what Joe believes are the biggest new trends happening right now in triathlon and potential future trends that are going to happen soon in the coming years. So with that said, let's dive right into the interview. So first, obviously, with the release of the fourth edition of the Triathletes Training Bible, let's talk a bit about that. It's not just a slightly updated and revision with spell corrections. It's completely revamped. So can you tell the listeners about that? What is new? Yeah. What's, what's been kept from the old version? Almost almost everything is new. First of all, the book started... The reason I, I did this was I had done, as you mentioned, this is the fourth edition. I'd done three updates on the book since it came out in 1997, if I recall, right? That's a long time. So the book has been out about 19 years. And I realized that it was about time to do another update. And I, the last time I'd done this, it was difficult because there, was, there were so many things that changed. And when I changed something in Chapter 3, for example, it would affect what I might have said in chapter seven and chapter 10 and chapter 15. And so I'd have to go through and change all those things. And, and then you start thinking about the number of things that have changed in all these years. The book would just been, have become this accumulation of band-aids. 
me going through the book and adding on or making changes, all these things all the way through like a, like a big pyramid. And so I decided simply just to do away with the book. I threw the manuscript away. I uh, started from scratch. The only thing I kept about the same is the, uh, the table of contents. It's very similar to the original table of contents, which I thought was very good. But the, the entire book and manuscript was tossed out, and I just started from scratch and rewrote the entire book. So it's, it's a brand-new book on training for triathlon. And what I've done, basically, the bottom line is I've incorporated the newest stuff that's going on in triathlon, the most recent changes that have taken place over, actually over the years. Not only that in terms of science, but also in terms of my opinions about how to train athletes for triathlon. Those things now show up in the book. Whereas before, they weren't nearly as well developed or weren't even there at all in the original version. So can you give us some examples of what some of these new topics are? Yeah. Well, for example, I would say if we had to look at one thing that sets the book apart from the predecessor, it's that the book has become very personalized. The original book, for example, I talked about one way to periodize because this is 1997. Quite honestly, in 1997, almost no one outside of the elite athletes and in sport knew about periodization it was still kind of new to across the board in endurance sports and so i only indicated one way to, to train one periodization model and i said this is it follow this plan and you'll define now 19 years later athletes have a, quite a, a good handle on what periodization is they, they understand it it's, not, it's no longer a mystery and so now i offer several different ways of periodizing And I explain each one individually. I explain the pros and cons of each. And I also talk about how they can decide which thing is best for them. So that theme follows really all the way through the book. I've tried to personalize it so the athlete can make decisions based on uh, their unique situation. And one other thing that you have added to the new book or increased at least the amount of information on is uh, swim training for triathletes. We talked a bit about that in the pre-interview. So... Can you just give a brief breakdown about that for the listeners? Yeah, what I've done there is a little background. I, I've put on camps for many years for triathletes. We've done them in Spain and Italy. And uh, I, I've learned over the years that there are certain things that triathletes could do to improve the swimming, which are very, very simple things. What I find they typically they do when they show up at my camp is they've got a technique which is kind of amalgamation of many different things they've read over the years is kind of a hodgepodge and, and not very not very efficient, which is what swimming is all about. Swimming is more about technique than it is about what we classically call fitness. So if we can get the technique right, then the athlete will be more efficient. If the athlete's more efficient, they'll swim faster. It's not a matter of how many intervals you do. It's a matter of how good your skills are. That's the key. So in my camps, what I do is I teach the athletes four things. There's only four things they have to know. I've, I've determined to, uh, to be really pretty good at swimming. They won't, they won't be going to the Olympics, but they'll be pretty good at swimming if they master these four things, and they're simple things. So in, in the book, I devote a chapter to this. First thing is something I call posture, which is getting the body in the water in, in, a, in a streamlined manner and how to go about doing that. Most athletes kind of swim with their, their heads up and their feet, tails, shoulders, hip, I mean their hips and uh, legs slightly too low so they're in this position so we talk about how to get up in this position which reduces drag and therefore makes them faster now a lot of athletes already have this figured out so if they do we move on to the second step if they haven't got it figured out then we work on that technique until they do have it figured out 
Second technique is something I call distance or um, direction. Direction has to do with where the hand enters the water. Typically what triathletes do when they swim is their hand enters the water and crosses over in front of their, their center line. So they're swimming, trying to swim to the right, then they're trying to swim to the left, and so they kind of go like this. And so I go through techniques to, to teach them how to quit doing that. It's just as bad as if they're trying to run with um, one leg crossing over in front of the other leg. And um, so it's, it's really kind of a wasted energy also. So that's posture and direction. Third thing is length. Typically, athletes don't have very good length. They swim like tugboats. Tugboats don't have any rotation whatsoever. They don't have, they're very, very square to the water. They present the, the front end of the boat is very broad, whereas a speedboat is very streamlined. And by learning to become more, to have a more length in their stroke, they become much more streamlined, much more like a speedboat instead of a tugboat. And so that becomes the third thing, and we go through drills for that, and those drills are also discussed in the book. They're simple drills, and you can master that technique. And finally, the fourth thing is catch. This is the icing on the cake. Once you figured out the other three things, the fourth piece, which most triathletes do not have, it's rare that I have somebody come to my camp already knowing how to make a catch in their swim stroke. The catch is when your fingers are basically pointing to the bottom of the pool, and your palm of your hand is pointing backwards toward the, if you're in the pool, the wall behind you. And so we have to teach them to do that. Most athletes have the palm of their hand pointing straight down and their fingers pointing at the wall in front of them. And by swimming that way, they're simply pushing down on the water. There's no catch taking place at all. Catch doesn't occur until very, very late in their stroke when they get their hand down somewhere underneath their belly. They finally get their fingers down, their hand palm pointed backwards and now they've got a catch, but their catch only winds up being about this long, whereas good swimmers have a catch as, as long as their arm is, even longer because they've learned how to length, lengthen their stroke. So that becomes the technique I teach, it's just four separate things. And what I found in my camps is that 90% of the swimmers who do that, who learn the technique, improve their, swim, their, their 500 swim times. We do a 500 on day one, we do a 500 on the last day there in my camps. And in between, they train something like about 20 to 25 hours. So by the time they get to the last day, they're very tired. Almost none have ever done 20, 25 hours of training. They do it now, and they come to the last day, and I still have 90% of them swim faster than they did at the start of the week, even though they're very tired. And all we've worked on all week long is doing 25s. We haven't done anything longer than 25. So they do the 500 technique, uh, 500 tests on the first day. Then we swim 25s every day, and all we do on those 25s is work on posture, direction, length, and catch. And then we swim a 500 on the last day, and they improve. So it's really not becoming more aerobically fit. It's becoming better with technique that makes these athletes improve. Wow, yeah. Those are really amazing results that you can get with, with just improving your technique. That's really impressive. So let's move on to perhaps the main topic of this interview, which is periodization and structure mm -hmm. of training. So... First, let's kind of go into the general topic of periodization. So how should triathletes approach, approach planning their season and creating their an annual training plan, as you call it, or call it at least the last edition of the book? Sure. I would say if we talk about a philosophy of periodization that makes it very simple for everybody, the philosophy is that the closer in time you come to your race, the more like the race your training should become. So let me explain that then. So if you're training for... An Ironman distance race, that would mean 
when you're many, many months away from the race, you can be doing lots of things that you never do in the race, such as lift weights. There's no place in Ironman uh, race where you get off the bike and lift weights. It's just not done. So that's very much unlike the race. So the farther we are in time from the race, the more, the more beneficial it is to do things that are unlike the race. But on the other end, things that are like the race are, for example, on the bike, riding at the, the intensity that is intended to be used on race day. So we're going to do increasingly more of that kind of workout as we get closer to the race. So the, by the time we get to the race, the athlete is very good at having the intensity nailed down the need to do not only in the bike, but also in the swim and the run. So we, what we've done is we move from very general training, unlike the race, to very specific training, very much like the race. And there's a gradual change over the course of several weeks and months. That's a, that's a good breakdown of general, general purpose of periodization. And that's also why I remember reading one of your blog posts where you talked about the difference between linear or traditional periodization and reverse periodization and saying that it really is just periodization. It's just getting more and more specific and it depends on, the, it's your goal race that decides which of those different systems you're going to use basically, but the philosophy is still the same. So right. with that in mind, uh, you have some specific phases of periodization that you lay out in the book. Uh, so can you go, go into those phases of periodization or of a periodized season and and tell us a little bit about what you do in each of those phases? Yeah, well, this, this again comes down to which periodization model is the athlete using. If it's the linear model, which is what I described in the very first uh, triathlete's training bible, that model, um, in, in that model, the athlete starts off doing, uh, in the base period, the uh, many, many months and weeks before the race, we'll say something like at least three months before the race, and, and generally three to six months is more common. During that period of time, the athlete in linear periodization is doing lots and lots of volume. They're just building, they're building miles, they're building time, they're building kilometers. They're just putting in lots of volume, and as that period progresses, they gradually start to insert more uh, higher intensity. Not extremely high, but higher. Then as we move into the, the last 12 weeks or so before the race, now what the athlete is doing in linear periodization is they're introducing more, a lot more race-like intensities. They're just doing lots and lots of workouts that are like the race. And they're doing the volume may not be as high now, but now the intensity is high. And so that's the idea of going from this general to specific way of training. And that would be a way of training that could be used by almost any athlete, but there are some methods which may prove to be better for certain types of athletes and, and certain types of races also. Yeah, that's a good breakdown. And I've been using your plan from your best triathlon book for training for the sprint distance nationals, for example, and that worked great for that kind of race. And that philosophy really worked in that yeah. case. It was yeah. uh, half a year of, of preparing and starting out very easy, building a base and then building up with to higher intensity levels. So yeah. if you go a bit into the what the Ironman athletes should do, if you use, for example, a reverse periodization model, how, well, you, you touched upon that already, but but if you go a bit deeper into that, into that subject, okay. because a lot of the listeners are preparing for those kind of long, long races. Well, the, the, the bottom line is it remains the same concept is still still there, even though it's reverse linear periodization. What we're going to do now is we're going to start off with lots of intensity in the general preparation period because essentially the Ironman race doesn't take a lot of intensity. You're not going to be doing things above anaerobic threshold, for example, in, in an Ironman distance race. 
So back in the in the general preparation period, which maybe was sometimes referred to as the base period, in reverse linear periodization, what we're doing is a lot of high intensity training intervals, high intensity stuff. The volume is not too great. In other words, duration is not too big. But as we progress then into the last 12 weeks before the race, now it begins to shift toward stuff which is more like the race, which means in this case for the Ironman that the workouts are going to become longer. Durations are going to increase. Bike workouts are going to go from maybe what they were in the base period, which may have been two hours, to now we're doing workouts which are three, four, five, perhaps even six hours long on the bike. Same thing with swim, same, same thing with the run. So the, the duration of workouts is increasing, which generally also means that volume is increasing. Volume is the, the amount of uh, miles, kilometers, or hours one does in a week's time, for example. So that would be the change. And what's, what's reversed about it is that we've simply taken the high intensity for linear periodization and moved it to the base period. And we've taken the, the uh, higher volume of the base period and moved it to the the, um, the build period, the more specific, the last few weeks before the race. So that's why it's called reverse linear. It's still a linear platform. Still got, it's a unidirectional platform, but now we've reversed the method of how you do volume and intensity. Right. And are there any other philosophies or systems except for the traditional linear and, and reverse linear system that are, uh, you see? There are many, many different ways of doing this. Once you start reading about periodization, your head begins to swim because quite honestly, It just goes on and on and on and on. Another one which, which a lot of triathletes use, which I explain in the book also, is called undulating periodization. It kind of has the same pattern in that we're going to go from perhaps high volume in the base period to higher intensity in the build period. But the difference is now what we do is we manipulate things on perhaps a weekly basis. There's lots of ways of doing this. could be daily, could be monthly. But typically the way it's done is on a... Is on a uh, a weekly basis. So I might have a week in the base period where I, I emphasize the bike volume, but I also do some swimming and I do some running, but the emphasis is on the bike. Then the next week, I put the emphasis on the run and I do some swimming and some and some cycling. And I may keep those two as the two I alternate or undulate. So you can see this undulating pattern going throughout the base period. And I, keep, I may keep swimming the same throughout that period of time. And then when I get to the build period, I'll do the same thing. Only now it'll be, instead of being high volume when I undulate for each of the sports, it'll be intensity. So I'll, I'll have a week where I have high intensity running, but low intensity for the bike. And that'll alternate as I go through the remaining part of the, of the weeks, the season, building up to my race. So that's called undulating periodization. It, it, it's popular with, tri with a lot of triathletes because it, it works to have multiple sports that you can undulate with. So that's another method, which is very common. A fourth one, which is really best for elite athletes, and I mean truly elite, not people who've just been around the sport for a long time, but people who are podium contenders, it's called block periodization. This is the newest of the methods. It's only been around for something like about, oh gosh, uh, less than 20 years, uh, which makes it relatively new in, in the field of periodization. And so this one is unique in that what the athlete does is only focuses on one thing at a time. Instead of doing, for example, what I suggest in my, in my book for most age group athletes is they may be working on, on uh, aerobic endurance, muscular endurance, and speed skills all at the same time, within a week, for example, and then repeating that throughout, the, throughout a, a block of four weeks. Whereas in block periodization, the athlete will only have one thing to focus on, for example, aerobic endurance. That's it. And so if they're not recovering, they're working on aerobic endurance. 
The reason for this is that elite athletes, truly, truly elite athletes, are very close to their potential, very close. If their potential is here, they are like right there. They're just almost to it. Uh, whereas age group athletes usually have a lot of big gap between their potential and where they actually are. So doing lots of things is okay. But when you get to this position where you're almost to your potential, you can't water down your workouts. You have to make sure they're, they're very, uh, the condensation, if you will, is very heavy. You're doing the concentration of the workouts now is, is extremely high. We have to do lots and lots and lots of muscular endurance to build muscle, to get to our potential. We can't just do it like once a week. We've now got to do it on an almost daily basis to make it happen since we're so close. So it's hard to get that. So that's block prioritization works best for elite athletes. Right. That's really interesting. So you touched upon also structuring your week and how you how you lay out your workouts within the week or the microcycles that you have. So, so why don't we go a bit more into that topic? How do you, if let's say that you have your workouts for a week or for a microcycle, you know what they are in the specific period that you're in, but, but is there a, a good way and a bad way to place them on specific weekdays? Yeah, and this really comes down to the individual. Some athletes just have the capacity to handle a lot of, uh, a lot of training stress, high training load. You know, lots of lots of volume and lots of intensity, and they can do it on a fairly what I call high density training method. In other words, the hard workouts can be relatively close to each other. Like like every 48 hours, they can have a very hard workout or, or a very hard day, multiple workouts. Other athletes can't do that. They need less density. They need more time between the hard workouts. For example, this might be a, a junior triathlete. This might be a senior triathlete, an over 50, over 60 triathlete. Might be a novice triathlete. Those folks are more likely to need more, less density, some more time to recover between hard workouts. They might do a hard workout on, say, Tuesday, and then take it kind of easy on Wednesday and Thursday where they work primarily on skills, perhaps, and also maybe on aerobic endurance, and then come back to the higher intensity training on, on Friday of that week. So they'd have the, the density would be less than the athlete who is doing high intensity on Tuesday and coming back with high intensity on Thursday with only a one easy day between them. So that becomes an individualized thing, which I can't tell the athlete how to do it. It really comes down to the athlete learning what works best for them and then designing their plan to do that. In the new book, I talk about that and how you can go back making those decisions on how great the density of your training should be. Right. Okay. So we should get the book done, and I'm sure you should get it anyway, but, but that sounds like a really good, good thing to add to your training arsenal, especially for the self-coached triathletes out there to really make sure that you make the most of your training by having the density of your hard training days be, be the optimal one for you specifically. So with that said, we, you also one of your books, more recent books actually, is called Fast After 50. And I wanted to talk a little bit about this. So how do you, what are your tips for the master's athletes that are approaching 50 or over 50 years old? Yeah, there's three actually. This whole book uh, came about because I was about to turn 70. And that's a very scary number. You'll, you'll learn someday. And uh, I realized from what I had read back in the 90s about the same subject, turning, becoming older, that 70 was the number that the, most of the science was saying was the, the number we can expect when we could expect great declines in performance. And so starting two years before, I decided to read all the literature I could on that topic of aging athletes. And uh, 
I didn't think it would take very long, but it wound up taking almost two years because there had been so much research that had come out in the, uh, the last 10 or 15 years that I, I spent every day reading research. And so I was accumulating new thoughts about training over the time, over this time, and, and started writing about some, some of it in my blog. And I noticed that lots of athletes were asking questions and, and showing great interest in the topic. So I decided that based on that, I would write a book where I summarize all these things, basically. The bottom line in the book, here is the, uh, I don't know what you call them there, we call them cliff notes here, which when you're in college and you're trying to, you know, you don't want to read the entire book, you just want to get the bottom line of what it's about. You, you can purchase something called cliff notes for the, for the topic. So here's the cliff notes for uh, Fast After 50. Number one is, number one reason why athletes slow down with aging is a drop in VO2 max, aerobic capacity. That should not be an overwhelming idea for anybody. I think we kind of expect that to happen. However, what I found in the research is that it drops faster if you quit doing high intensity. If you stop training altogether, it will drop really quick. VO2 max will, will really drop quickly if you quit doing any training of it whatsoever. If you continue to train, but what you start doing is doing more and more long, slow distance training with no high intensity, you're going to lose VO2 max also really quickly, but not as quickly as if you stopped altogether. But if you include high intensity training, and by high intensity, I mean training at around your VO2 max, which is a, a pretty high intensity. It's like on a scale of one to 10 on an effort scale, this is like a nine, 10 being the highest. So it's, it's very high doing intervals, which challenge you in that area maintains your aerobic capacity at a much higher level and the decline is very slight in all the research and these, some of these are great research studies that lasted over 20 years where they followed elite athletes to see what happened to them over 20 years and that's exactly what they found happened to them if they kept on doing intervals and in racing their vo2 maxes remained extremely high if they quit doing intervals and just kept on doing uh, recreational training uh, long slow distance then their aerobic capacity began to drop rather quickly. If they stopped turning altogether, it dropped precipitously. So that's the key thing for maintaining aerobic capacity as one gets, one gets older is doing intervals. And I just described the intervals and all that in the book, how to do that and so forth. Second thing that uh, happens with athletes as they age is they lose muscle mass. We begin to shrivel up. Our muscles just aren't as robust as they were when we were younger. Lots of reasons for that. One is because we quit using them. For example, we quit doing intervals. We start doing long, slow distance, and so that just encourages or discourages the, um, the building of muscle mass. It discourages it. So it basically it causes us to lose muscle mass because we've, we've toned down the intensity of our exercise. Intensity requires muscle. Everybody thinks it's their heart. The heart plays a small role in this. The real, the real determiner of performance when doing intervals is muscle. So doing intervals improves muscle mass. Lifting weights improves muscle mass. So I encourage athletes over the age of 50 to keep on lifting weights. Don't stop. Keep on lifting. It'll do more good for you after the age of 50 than did before 50. No question about it. And finally, the other thing that changes is our, our body composition changes. We, we become, we have a higher percentage of body fat. Sometimes it doesn't show up on scales. If you have bathroom scales, for example, sometimes the change doesn't show up there because we've lost muscle mass, which is rather dense uh, material compared to fat, but we've gained fat. So you may, you may be exactly the same body weight you were 10 years earlier, but now there's been a shift. We've lost muscle and we've gained fat. And so this comes down to 
trying to keep our bodies from, from storing so much fat. And that comes down to hormones, basically. As we get older, we don't produce as much uh, hormones. And the slowing in hormone production means the body accumulates more fat. So how can you improve hormones? Well, number one, do intervals. Intervals actually cause your body to, to be more likely to release hormones. Secondly, lift weights. Intense exercise. Any intense exercise stimulates your body to produce hormones, anabolic hormones, the ones that build tissue. Sleep. We don't get nearly enough sleep. I required, when I was coaching, I required the athletes I coach to get a lot of sleep every night. And what does that mean? What's a lot of sleep? That means they would wake up without an alarm clock. If the alarm clock wakes you up every morning, you're artificially cutting your, short, you're cutting your sleep short. What's the downside of that? Your body produces hormones at night. That's when it does it, when you're asleep. So if you cut the sleep short, you've essentially reduced the hormone production, and so you're going to age faster than the person who, who has longer sleep sessions. So those are the three biggies. That's the cliff notes for, for Fast After 50, and um, all the details in the book just help you understand why that's the case. Mm, really useful tips for, for anybody who's approaching that, that age mark and, and anybody and all coaches out there as well. For me as a younger coach, it's, it's really useful to get those, those sorts of things. And I realized that I should get that book as well. Uh, now, I have one more question. Piggybacking on, on the uh, Triathlete's Training Bible, you mentioned that the new concepts that you see in triathlon training that you use and that research has found. I just wanted to get like kind of some insight into or a brief overview into what those topics are. And is there anything that you didn't cover in the triathletes training Bible, but that you think will become or could become a big thing in the future in triathlon? Yeah. I, I, well, for example, there, there are a number of things I talk about. I, I talk about power, for example, in, uh, in cycling. And now we've got power for running also. It's still really new there. So it's only just it's only just kind of touched on in this book because it's such a new thing that we're really not to the point where we understand exactly how to use it. That'll be another, another book someday is how to use this, this new tool. So a lot more on power meters, how to use power meters in the bike. Others on new information on how to train. For example, um, I talk in the book a considerable amount about the distribution of training load. How do you distribute the volume and intensity of training over the course of, of, uh, of a week, a block, which may be a month long, a season. How do we do that? How do we distribute the intensities? How do we do that? How much high intensity should you be doing over the course of the season? And, and one of the things we've, we've been discovering now, we've learned in the last about 14, 15 years, is something called polarized training, which most athletes have probably heard about by now, but they're somewhat uh, confused by it, I think. So I talk about how to polarize training. Polarized training means that a large chunk of training is done at your aerobic threshold or lower. Aerobic threshold is a rather low intensity. Let's say it's like around a three or four on a scale of one to 10. So it's rather low. A huge chunk of your, of your training time should be spent at aerobic threshold or lower. Very easy training. That may be 70 or 80% of the athlete's training is down there. Most athletes try to do most of their training in the region just above their aerobic threshold up to their anaerobic threshold, which is kind of this middle ground. And that's kind of really the kind of the area you want to save only for when you're training specifically for a race. In the last few weeks before the race, the last, let's say, 10, 12 weeks before the race, you'll start doing lots of workouts in that range because that's where every triathlon that's done is done in that range between aerobic and anaerobic thresholds. 
Ironman distance races are done close to the aerobic threshold. Sprint distance races are done close to the anaerobic threshold. And that puts Olympic and 70.3s or half Ironmans someplace between those outer banks of uh, this middle range. So we save that for when we're specifically turning for the race based on our periodization. And then there's a chunk of training which is above the anaerobic threshold. And I mentioned some of that just, just a few minutes ago when talking about aging athletes and how they need to do some exercise, some training, interval workouts that are above the anaerobic threshold, high intensity stuff. And that will help probably every athlete. It's only a question of when they do it in their seasons. So that's the polarized training concept. You also ask what things are kind of uh, where we're going or new concepts that are coming around. One that's going on right now, which I'm amazed at how fast it's being uh, taken up by athletes, is something called the training stress score, which has to do with quantifying the workout that you do, not only in terms of the duration, which is what most of us think in terms of, but also in terms of intensity and putting it into one number. So I can say this workout was a TSS of 100, and that tells me something about the relationship between duration and intensity. Whereas most athletes tell me, if I ask them how the workout went, they say, well, I did a three-hour bike ride. Okay, so what does that mean? It doesn't really tell me a whole lot because really, quite honestly, the most important piece uh, of the two, intensity or, or duration, the most important element for the advanced athlete, which I would take to mean after that been in support for three or more years, for that athlete, the most important thing is intensity. And yet when they tell me they did three hours, I really don't know what they did for intensity. Even if they try to tell me whether they did a a moderately hard ride, what does that mean? When I have a number like 100 TSS, I now know how hard the workout was. And this now then becomes a reference point for then coming up with other workouts that are based on both duration and intensity and not just one or the other. So that is catching on amazingly quick. That's been around, quite honestly, since uh, about 2004 or so. A guy by the name of uh, Andy Coggin, PhD, Andy Coggin, uh, sports science, came up with this idea in the early 2000s. Hardly anybody knew about it, but a few of us were started using it. And over the years, it's become much more popular. And now I'm getting athletes writing to me, asking questions about their TSS and wanting to know how they can do a better job of increasing their ability to, to manage TSS or handle bigger training loads. And so it's become a whole, a whole way of thinking about training all by itself. And I only see that continuing to grow right now in terms of uh, usage by, by athletes across the board. Not only uh, triathletes, but runners and, and swimmers and cross-country skiers and right down the line. It's become very popular with many, many other sports, although triathlon and road cycling seems to be where it has the biggest following right now. Definitely agree on that. And one thing that's really exciting that Training Peaks actually just recently rolled out is the periodization based on training stress score. So that's a completely right. new feature that I just started experimenting with. So, so that's really exciting. And, and yet, for those who don't know, tra- training stress score TSS is uh, one of the main ways that Training Peaks quantify and help you analyze your training. So, so if you're considering joining or Training Peaks, you can do that with a free account or you can get the advanced account and, and then you can look at those metrics and see what they can tell you. But they're really, really useful. So definitely agree on that. And it's uh, only going to get better as we start to learn it better and learn how to use it better and better. So I agree. Uh, 
I want to be mindful of your time, Joe, so let's move into the rapid-fire questions segment. Oh, okay. So short and sweet questions and short and sweet answers, mostly, hopefully. So uh, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon or endurance sports? Yeah, you know, I read lots of books. I I'm afraid most athletes would never think they have anything at all to do with triathlon, but I'll read books on psychology. Uh, I'll read books on... Uh, uh, I'm reading a book right now called Super Forecasting, which is about how to predict, which is a, a, a big area when you work with, with athletes. Trying to predict what they can do is critical to their training. And so right now, that book is, is high on my list of, of books because I'm learning a lot about forecasting and thinking about the future, things I can apply to, uh, to athletes. And I hope to include some of those those. Uh, things I've learned as I get into uh, my blogs, for example, and other things down the road. I don't really have any uh, uh, websites I, I, I go to regularly that have to do with, uh, with training, unless it has to do with research. I read a lot of research, so I'm always going to websites that, are, that the, the various journals uh, have to see what's the newest things in terms of what's coming out this month and in terms of the research that's been done. So that's, that's really my only blog sites I look at, or uh, yeah. websites. That's good. We just had a sports psychologist on a couple of episodes ago, so the audience will be familiar with how important that is and what it can do for your triathlon performances. So what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? <laughs> uh, for me, that's the power meter. Uh, I started using power meters in 1994, and uh, I'm still learning how the power meter works. I'm still trying to to get a, a good grasp on it. I, I know a lot about the power meter I didn't know in 1994, but there's still a lot to be learned. It's amazing how this tool, which only tells you the combination of force being applied to the pedal and how fast the pedals are turning, that's all it's doing, and it comes up with one number, which is wattage, and from that, there is so much that can be done, it's almost overwhelming. We're to the point now we're talking about Stuff, more stuff from, uh, uh, from Andy Coggin, for example, time to exhaustion, stamina, power max, functional threshold power, model functional threshold power, uh, so forth. The whole topic is just huge. And so we're still trying to get a handle on how to use this information, even though it's fairly basic information. What's a personal habit that's helped you achieve triathlon success and success in life in general? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe being boring. I'm not sure exactly what it would be. <laughs> I, uh, uh, my, I, I'm very. Let's put it this way. I'm very consistent in what I do. I read research every morning. I've been doing that since since the early 1980s. So almost every day when I travel, it's hard to do. But every, almost every when I'm home, every day, first thing I do is read research. That's the start of my day. I've been doing that for 30 some years. Do some how many? I guess it's more than that actually. Now it's it's. Uh, uh, 20, yeah, 35 years now. And uh, what I've found is that if there's something you want to be good at, if you just do it every day, day after day after day after day after day, every year, year after year after year, you'll become eventually pretty good at it. And so now I've got a pretty good knowledge base of research from 30-some years of reading studies. And I think that's the most important thing I've done is simply to understand so that that was consistency but I think I try to plug that into many things in my life, like training. I try to be very consistent with the training, although I'm not because I travel way too much. I just got back from about almost two weeks in the UK, 
Before that, I was three weeks in Eastern Europe. And before that, I was two weeks in Norway. And so consequently, it's very hard for me to be consistent with my training. But before all the travel started, I was very consistent with my training. And that, that helped me produce pretty good race results in my when I was actually racing. I've had to quit racing now because of my travel. So I, I would guess that's probably the, the most uh, beneficial thing I've done throughout my life, which is quite boring. No, I agree. Consistency is king. Uh, it's uh, the key to most success, I would say. And what's your favorite race? Oh, there's no doubt about that. Favorite race is Hawaii Ironman. Started going to it in 1989. And I miss it. I'm like I missed this year because I was in Eastern Europe. But uh, basically, uh, I, I just enjoy going to the race. It's everybody in the sport who is serious about the sport is there. And that's not only the athletes and their coaches. It's also people in, in the, um, the businesses that are on the fringes of the sport. I run into lots of people there I, I haven't seen perhaps in years. It's the fact that sometimes it's the only place I ever see them all year long is in Ironman Hawaii. So I like to be there. It's one of the high points of my year to go to Ironman, and uh, I hope I don't miss it next year. This year the timing just wasn't right, but next year I hope to be back there again, as usual. Let's hope so. Thank you again for being on the show, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you, Michael. I enjoyed it and uh, look forward to hearing how it comes out for you and you get it all done. Excellent. Bye then. Bye. And there you have it. Joe's such an amazing inspiration for me. I really admire the man and he's a fantastic guest. His wealth of knowledge is really second to none. So my main takeaways from this interview, individualization of training is something that we talked about uh, as it uh, relates to the triathletes training bible that was one of the main updates that joe made to the book and that's something that you should keep in mind at all times don't just listen to any advice make sure that you know that the plan you follow the advice you listen to in terms of triathlon training is applicable to you and your situation and your individual needs second training for masters athletes and the importance of intensity in training like doing vo2 max intervals and strength training and how that can help really reduce the decline in, in performance and in aerobic capacity lean muscle mass and, and other stuff that's very very useful and that's something that bears repeating for masters athletes that you need to do these things to reduce the decline in performance or even improve performance there's nothing that says that it's, it's not possible it depends on your training age basically when you started training and finally a couple of things that joe brought up in the rapid fire question segment the importance of consistency in triathlon training, any life in general, and sport psychology and mindset. And those are two things that are really my top two priorities, I would say. Consistency, staying consistent is much more important than doing a few monster workouts every now and then. I'd rather have 52 good weeks of training than 40 great weeks of training and 12 weeks where I'm injured. That the 52 good weeks would make me much more use in the end. And mindset and psychology, they are huge. They are really putting limitations on you or can put limitations on you if you don't really work with that and, and train that side of triathlon as well. And that's something that I'm noticing more and more and I'm getting into it like very recently, but it is huge. So let's wrap up here. This has been a pretty long episode, but to get the show notes, go to www.thattriathlonshow.com that's where you'll find the show notes and all the links mentioned in the episode. And please, if you like the show, 
please tell your friends about it this is a new podcast and i need all the help i can get to spread the word about it i really want to to keep these interviews coming and and the solo episodes as well for a long time in the future but i need to get some traction to be able to do it and, and get some listenership going and remember the contest as well so if you go to that com. you will find the instructions for the contest but basically you can win a 50 dollar amazon gift card if you subscribe to the podcast and you rate and review it in itunes so go to that com and read those instructions and go and subscribe rate and review and you can enter to win that gift card so in the next episode i will talk about the eight essential elements of effective triathlon training and that will be a solo episode when it's based on a blueprint or a framework of sorts that I've set up for myself and for the athletes that I coach to make sure that the triathlon training that I do and my athletes do is effective at all times. See you then. Bye. Bye.